Well, panic is the only way to describe how I felt that particular Saturday morning. I was a homeschool dad, and someone in our homeschool group decided it would be fun to take our children spelunking. Spelunking is the technical term for crazy people exploring dark, damp caves where only spiders and other delightful creatures dwell. Clothed in our oldest jeans and sweatshirts, well, because of bat guano, look it up, we, we made our way to the mouth of the Cave of the Winds right outside Colorado Springs with flashlights in hand. During our brief orientation, we were told how caves offer the best glimpse of total darkness, as if this was a selling point. Turn off the lights, the guide said, and you literally cannot see your hand in front of your face. He also informed us when experienced spelunkers, that is crazy people, plan to stay overnight in a cave. Why? They bring glow sticks that radiate a small amount of light for about six hours. Without the glow sticks, people are unable, unable to comfortably sleep through the night in a cave. This is shocking. <laughs> Besides, in a cave, who knows whether or not it's night. After several trips through some narrow, low passages, including one called the birth canal. <laughs> okay, we actually didn't go through the birth canal. Because just the week before, a lady had gotten stuck in there, and they had to call a rescue squad to get her out. I'm not sure how they got her out, but I'm sure it was some labor. <laughs> we made our way. By the way, while I, while I, I say that, speaking of, of labor, I uh, got a text this morning that my son and daughter-in-law were on the way to the hospital for the birth of our first grandchild. <laughs> About stinking time. They take us off the well-beaten path. This, the guide said, would require courage to go on. So we gripped our flashlights more tightly, continued along a loop that necessitated crawling, climbing, twisting, bending, and even inching our way along on our bellies. We paid for this. Upon returning to the starting point, the guide said, there's no way to get lost in the loop there's only one way in. It's just a loop. There's just one way in and one way out. So if you're brave enough, do it again, this time without your flashlights. After a few nervous moments, several foolish children plunged in. Not to be outdone, several foolish parents climbed in. I am not sure what possessed me. But before I knew it, I found myself inching along a wet cave barely large enough to allow me to pass in total Darkness. No one seemed to panic. I could hear the irritating laughter of children up ahead. I pressed on, expecting, actually hoping, to one day see the end. You can imagine my joy when about 15 minutes later, I was met with the brightest flashlight I'd ever seen. You see, it seems true that light is always brightest when the night is darkest. When, when the darkness is gloomiest, 
when it is so dark you can feel it. Can't imagine a darker scene in history than the evening that Adam and Eve hid from from God in the garden. I imagine they longed for the cover of darkness. You see, they were accustomed to walking with God, basking in and reflecting the light of his glory. That, that evening, there was no basking, there was no reflecting. <laughs> because earlier that day, the man and his wife had eaten of the only tree forbidden them. And so it was dark, very dark. When God appeared, knowing what they had done, he cursed his perfect creation. The serpent was to crawl on his belly. Man was to struggle with the cursed ground to produce fruit. And woman was to suffer in childbirth. They were plunged into a world now filled with pain and sin and brokenness and rebellion of their own making. And what's more, both the man and the woman would die. It was very dark, even hopeless. But in the midst of that darkness, God said to the serpent, he said to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Understand that light at that moment pierced the darkness because hope was promised. You see, this was the first promise of the Savior who would come to redeem broken, rebellious, sinful humanity. While Satan would strike his heel at the cross, Jesus would crush his head at the resurrection. The the, the coming of hope is what we celebrate at Christmas and, and by the way, Easter. I want to say to you, the light has come. It, It shines brightest when the night is darkest. We now no longer live in darkness, but by faith in God's past actions in Christ and by hope in his future return when he will make all things right. It's going to fix the mess we've made. Today, December 1st, is the first Sunday of Advent. Advent has been celebrated by the church for centuries, perhaps going back as far as the 4th century The word Advent is actually Latin, and it means coming. The Christmas Advent season not only prepares the church for celebrating the first coming of Christ at Christmas, as Josh pointed out, but points also to the hope of his promised second coming. There are four Sundays of Advent, and each is a theme corresponding to the lighting of the candles of the Advent wreath. Those themes are hope, peace, joy, and love, culminating on Christmas Eve with the lighting of the Christmas candle in the middle of the wreath. We decided, I decided to take a break from 1 Peter and celebrate Advent this year by singing and preaching on those topics starting today with hope. In the midst of the darkness, sin, rebellion, struggle, trials, sickness, and death that you inevitably face there's hope. The truth is we were, we were meant to walk in light, 
That crazy cave guide proved it through that ridiculous experience of navigating, of us navigating in total darkness, which is exactly the way that the scripture describes people who do not know God, making our way through life in darkness with no hope. I suppose that describes most of us here today before we came to faith in Christ, and it perhaps describes some of you still yet. While there may be moments of, seeming moments of clarity and direction and fulfillment and purpose, and sometimes you can lay your head on the pillow at night and feel okay, the fact is without God, we walk in darkness, no hope. Right from the beginning of time, the very beginning of creation, light and darkness have played important yet opposing roles. They are both literal and metaphorical concepts um, uh, through the Scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And right away, we know almost innately that creation wasn't finished. Something more was needed, and God's about to do something really neat in the darkness. Then God said, the very first words that he speaks, at least in the Scripture, in the Bible, let there be light, and there was light. God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness because, you see, light and darkness cannot coexist. Now, 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 at this point, we know that there was nothing inherently wrong with darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And in the daily rhythms of life, we know that, that, that a day is given for work and night for rest, unless, of course, you're nocturnal, that is a college student. When he created humankind, God designed us to rest daily in the darkness of night. So darkness, if you will, served a purpose. But with the fall of humanity, when Adam and Eve ate of that forbidden fruit, plunging them and their posterity, that's every one of us, by the way, into sin and ruin, darkness became a metaphor for sin. And appropriately so, because sin is most fittingly accomplished under the cover of darkness. I have no stats for this, but I'd suggest much crime is committed at night, or at least in the dark. Indeed, much sin is committed after 11 p.m. I mean, after all, what is there to do at one in the morning? Some of you know that. There is the anonymity and the secrecy that darkness provides, which allows you to engage in things that you would never do, say, in the middle of the day at Wendy's. You probably won't take your phone out right now and surf some of those websites. A quick perusal of Scripture reveals darkness has become a metaphor for sin and consequent judgment. Psalm 11, behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. John 3, this is the judgment that light came, has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. They like the cover of darkness because they like their evil. 
Romans 13, the night is almost gone, the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. 1 John 1, if we say that we have fellowship with God, him, and, and, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. I think you get the point. Darkness is clearly a metaphor for sin. By further reviewing the scripture, bad news, every one of us is in darkness. Everyone stumbles around in life, a life of sin, choosing, even enjoying sin in the deeds of darkness. And the truth is, as momentary as the pleasure of sin and darkness is, we, we were not made to walk in darkness any more than I was made to crawl on my belly through a dark cave, bumping my head, skinning my knees. And yet, sin does something eternally worse. But walk in darkness is exactly what I and what you did. We were born sinners with depraved mind and heart, dead in transgressions and sin, and there was nothing we could do about it. We were enemies of God, opposing his kingdom and his right to rule our lives. And like the children laughing as they crawled in front of me, we even liked our sin, didn't we? Sin seems fun for a while until we find the momentary pleasures of sin give way to pain and sorrow and the, and the, and the brokenness, brokenness and bruising that it inevitably brings. Some of you are experiencing that right now. Finding that life doesn't really work right we were not made for the darkness. And so, conversely, light has become a metaphor for good and righteousness and truth in Scripture. Again, a quick perusal reveals this. Psalm 18, speaking of God, for you light my path. The Lord my God illumines my darkness. Psalm 27, Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Psalm 119, we all know this one. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And then Isaiah 9 which is that very famous Christmas passage that talks about wonderful counselor, mighty God, ever, uh, uh, everlasting uh, Father and Prince of Peace. We, we, we know that one, right? But, but before, it speaks of the coming of the Messiah. But there will be no more gloom for those who, 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 uh, for her who was in, dar- in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephthali, that's up north, with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness. We'll see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And in fact, that happened, didn't it? When Jesus was raised up north in Galilee, with the first coming of the Messiah, light came into the world. The, the, the people of the Old Testament knew, understood that God was a God of light. They, they equated light with deity. The Shekinah glory of God is what they called it. It's a brilliant, bright display of his glory. He manifests himself as a God of light. God is light, right? And in him is no darkness, not, a, not an ounce of darkness at all. He is immortal, invisible, the only wise God who dwells in unapproachable light for sinners. Remember when the children of Israel... Uh, were in slavery in Egypt. We've talked about this over the last couple of weeks. God sent Moses to deliver them. Of course, 
Pharaoh was not prepared to lose his labor force, so he refused to let them go, which gave the God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob the opportunity to show off just a bit, to demonstrate his superiority over the Egyptian gods through a series of 10 plagues. The, 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 the supreme god of the Egyptian pantheon of gods uh, was Ra, the sun god. So the ninth plague was what? It was darkness. Exodus 10 tells us that there was darkness over the land that could be felt for three days. During that time, they, they couldn't see each other. They couldn't see their hands right in front of their faces. It was like living in a cave without glow sticks, which they knew was not right. But we also find the Israelites had light in their homes. A little later, after the 10th plague, the Israelites did flee from Egypt and were led by God himself in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God's presence came to be, again, symbolized by light, what the scripture again calls the Shekinah glory of God. When they built the tabernacle and later the temple, his presence was seen to descend on it in the form of brilliant light. And the Israelites remembered this God of light, particularly the way that he led them out of Egypt and through the wilderness. They remembered that. That was a special time for them uh, as a nation. And so during one of their annual festivals, there were the big three one of those was the Feast of Booths, or you might know it as the Feast of Tabernacles. They celebrated God's goodness to them in the wilderness. They erected shelters or tents or tabernacles out of branches and leaves and camped outside for a week to commemorate the wilderness wanderings. They had special ceremonies during that week, that seven-day celebration, to remember God's provision for them. For example, there were the times that God provided water from the rock. Remember that? They really loved those stories. And so to remember and celebrate and pray for the continued provision of, well, physical water, each day during the seven-day feast, the high priest would lead a procession to the Pool of Siloam, which is just south of the old city, and draw water in a golden pitcher. He'd carry it back to the temple at the water gate. On the south side of the temple, the procession would stop. Three blasts would be sounded from the shofar, which is a trumpet made from the, a ram's horn. Isaiah 12 would then be read, therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. They somehow understood that there was a water that was more important than this physical water, you see. The priest would then march to the altar and the temple choir would sing the Hallel, that's Psalm 113 to 118, and then the water would be poured out as an offering to God. It was quite the, the, the visual sight and ceremony celebrating God's provision of, well, physical water. Not only that, uh, the, uh, another tradition had arisen through the centuries of Israel's history. It was the lamp lighting ceremony during this week to remember how the God of light had led them through the wilderness in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The ceremony took place in the court of women at the temple, which permitted both Jewish men and Jewish women. There, there were erected four huge, and I mean big, uh, cand oil candelabras in the, in the court, quite tall. Young men, a young priest would carry the oil up a very tall ladder and dump it into the basin, filling it up. The, the lamps were then lit on the first night of the festival. One historian says that the light was so bright that there was not a courtyard in all of Jerusalem did not, that did not reflect the light. Isn't that interesting? 
People would then dance exuberantly through the night, holding onto their own torches with their own hands, singing songs of praise. Some discussion, historically, as to how many nights the candelabras were lit, but there is general agreement that they would be out dark by the end of the week. Remember those courtyards all bright, dark. Which meant this, the nights that had been ablaze, symbolizing the presence of God, were now dark. And it was against this backdrop, water ceremony and the lamp ceremony, on the last day of the Feast of Booze, Jesus went to the temple and cried out with a loud voice for all to hear, if anyone is thirsty, hear these words, people. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. I've got something besides physical water. You drink it and you'll thirst again. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Yes, he is saying it is true that my father provided physical water for you in the wilderness, which you have just celebrated, but if you will come to me, I will provide spiritual water and you will never thirst again. Doesn't that sound good? I am the water of life. He's inviting you to come and drink freely. And then in John chapter eight, as the candelabras were now dark, end of the week, Jesus cried out again, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Everyone knew exactly what Jesus was saying. The candelabras stood there representing the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. God's presence in their midst of their forefathers, the, the one that they followed, they understood the scriptures. They understood that God was a God of light. That was the reason I just went through all of that. They understood that by following God, they would walk in the light of his presence and truth. They would live in hope, in the fulfillment of perhaps of Isaiah 9. Those who walk in darkness have seen a great light. But the candelabras are dark. And Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world. I am the God who will lead you into the light of life, eternal life, if you will follow me. You see, these people were steeped in Old Testament scripture. They, they knew in, in Isaiah 42, uh, in, uh, God, was speak, God himself, the Father, was speaking to the Son, the Messiah to come in the first of the so-called servant songs. And he said, I am the Lord. I have called you, Jesus, in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant, the new covenant to the people, as a light to the nations to open blind eyes to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. Do you see? That's what Jesus came to do. Jesus said, I am the fulfillment of that prophecy. I'm here to be a light to the nations, to offer hope, and to deliver those who dwell in the dark prison of their own sin, their own making. We can't blame it on Adam and Eve. We're born sinners, and we willfully, joyously have chosen sin in our rebellion. And Jesus came to deliver you from that prison. They knew Isaiah 49, the second of the servant songs where God, again speaking to the Messiah, says, I will make you a light of the nations so that my, na my salvation will reach to the ends of the earth, even to Boone, North Carolina. 
Make no mistake about it, Jesus was declaring right there in the court of women where all the people were, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the nations. I am here to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. I am here to bring salvation. Hear it. I am here to bring salvation to you. This is the hope of the first Sunday of Advent. By the way, this is the second, this I am the light of the world is the second of Jesus' seven famous I am statements in the Gospel of John. I'm not going to talk through them this morning other than to recite them for you. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the true vine. The reason I read those is here's what I want you to see. All of those are meant to be exclusive. He alone is the bread of life. You can't get it anywhere else. He alone is the bread of life. He alone is the light of the world. He alone is the gate, the good shepherd, the resurrection of life. And he alone is the way, the truth, and the life, which is why he goes on to say, no one comes to the Father except through me. You're not going to find light anywhere else. He alone is the light, the answer to your sinned, darkened ways. There is no light but Jesus. If you do not have him today, you remain in darkness. You have no hope. Christmas is nothing more to you than a few lights and, and candles and, and, and a few presents under the tree. But Jesus promises if you follow him, that is if you make him your savior and your Lord, you become his disciple, you will not walk in darkness anymore but will walk according to the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the light of the world. And you can look back on his first coming in faith, believing the gospel, the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and you can look forward to his second coming in hope, in, in hopeful, eager anticipation. Is it today, Lord? Scripture says further, and 2 Corinthians 4, for God who said, let the light shine out of darkness. That, that's the first thing you said, remember? Right there in Genesis 1, let there be light is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You can only know God through the glory of his son. Colossians 1, he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, you see. In 1 Peter chapter 2, which we'll get to in January, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's what I want for you today. I want you to know the, the light of the gospel. I want you to know the glory of God in the face of Christ. Jesus said it again in John 12, I have come as a light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. So there it is. By faith in Jesus as the light of the world, the one who came to grant grace and mercy and forgiveness through his own cross, through faith, you can have life. You can have hope. And I, I, wanna, I want to be clear, you will find it nowhere else. Mahatma Gandhi, who is the man who led um, the country of India in their 
uh, independence movement from Great Britain. He actually studied in England. 15 years before his death wrote this, I must tell you in all humility that Hinduism as I know it entirely satisfies my soul and fills my whole being. Maybe that's where you are. I mean, you know, death seems like a long way away, so you're just kind of happy with where you are, with what you trust in, what you believe in, and the stuff that you have, and the presence you'll get under the tree. Later, just before his death, Gandhi wrote, my days are numbered. In fact, he was assassinated shortly thereafter at age 79. I'm not likely to live very long, perhaps a year, a little more, For the first time in 50 years, I find myself in the slew of despond. All about me is darkness. I am praying for light. Is that you? It's dark? Praying for light? I I have the light of the world to offer to you. Today, the first Sunday of the month, the first Sunday of Advent is also uh, the Sunday that we celebrate communion, as you can tell from the front. We have a special ceremony that we observe to remember God's goodness to us in the face of Christ. And so on these days, we remember Christ, and so I'm going to leave it at this first. For those of you still in your sin, I gently want to say to you, you are walking in darkness. Maybe you are finding that life does not work. You're tired of bumping your head and skinning your knees. And so to you, I give this invitation. Jesus is the light of the world. He can give meaning to your dark, confused, broken world if you choose to follow him. If you confess him as your savior and ask him to forgive you of your sins, and be the Lord of your life, you will find life and light in this miserable planet in which we live. If you believe, Acts 26 says, he will open your eyes that you may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to the dominion of his son, and you will receive the forgiveness of sins and receive an inheritance, an eternal inheritance in heaven. And you can have hope. The invitation is, if you choose to follow him, you will never again walk in darkness. Remember how I said at the beginning that this theme of light and darkness runs from the first chapter until the last? Well, let's look at that last chapter for a moment. Last chapter in the Bible, we have a description of heaven. And we read these words for, for those who are not walking in darkness who are followers of Jesus, and there will no longer be any night, and and, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. The promise, you see, is eternal. If you choose to follow Christ, you will never again walk in darkness in this life or in the life to come for all eternity. And so I invite you today to receive the light of the world. For those of you who know Jesus, who already follow him as your Lord, like the Feast of Booze, we, which commemorated God's light to the, the Israelites, so also through this memorial, 
thing that we do, we remember Christ's work on our behalf. You see, we eat the bread of his body, we drink the wine of his blood, and we remember. We, we look back in faith to his first advent, and we look forward with longing to his second, do we not? And as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.